when two undergrads are taking a class together, they might both be dreaming of winning a prize slot at some top graduate program. Are these two able to cheer each other on? Or is our system set up so that there are just so few slots that each student is better off if they get a high grade and the other one gets a low grade? If so, is that system inherently encouraging one student to have to kind of step on the other one to get to where they both want to go? That's one question raised by the work of philosopher Wahid Hussein in his 2020 scholarly paper, Pitting People Against Each Other. The work is unusually plain-spoken, and it's approachable. It won accolades in the field as one of the most important papers of that year. And education is one of the major case studies that this paper considers, as it asks the question of whether the rivalries created in our social systems are ethically problematic, but in ways that could be remedied. The basic idea is that it's worth taking a closer look at how the systems we all live in, how they make us feel about ourselves and about our connections with our fellow citizens. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and the managing editor here at Ed Surge. I came across this paper on pitting people against each other while I was researching our Bootstraps podcast series about educational equity. Hopefully people heard that series. If not, check it out on our feed. This paper really got to me, and I had tentatively set up an interview with Hussein himself to talk about it for the series. But before we were able to have that conversation, Hussein passed away. He died tragically after a bout with an aggressive cancer. And as we'll get to later in this episode, this research is personal for me. And I'm I'm very excited to be able to shine a light on this work this week. In today's highly polarized environment, Hussein's framework for thinking about ethics and education, it seems more relevant and important than ever. So for this episode, we're diving into this argument. Talking to a philosophy professor who studied with Hussein and regularly teaches the paper to his own students. That scholar is Hamish Russell. He's a grad student and a part-time assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Russell studies the intersection of philosophy and business ethics. And as Hussein did, he hopes to challenge the assumption that it's okay for business leaders to suspend some traditional morality in the name of market competition. An idea sometimes taught in business schools. I started by asking Hamish, about another example covered in Wahid's paper, about the healthcare system in America and the impact of tying insurance coverage to employment. And in the healthcare example, he asks us to compare two systems. One is where healthcare is just a, a, a guaranteed, perhaps you know, government-supplied right, in which case your your access to healthcare doesn't depend on any actions that you take, and it doesn't depend on any actions that other people take as well, right? You and your neighbor and everyone else down the street or elsewhere across the country has the the same access to healthcare regardless of what you do. And Hussein says, compare that with a system where your healthcare is based on the work that you're able to secure, where your access to healthcare is tied to your success in the labor market. Well, there... 
the, your access to healthcare, this sort of important basic right, depends on the decisions that you make, but also depends on the decisions that other people make as your competitors in the labor market, right? Your neighbor, um, assuming you, you and your neighbor, or perhaps you and your, your, your colleague or your um, classmate in a, in a similar course, you know, are, are, are competing against one another in the labor market. Well, now whether you <clears throat> have access to healthcare or the quality of the healthcare plan you can get um, depends on you kind of beating out those rivals that you now have in, in competition for jobs. Um, and Hussein's thought as well, under that second um, kind of employment insurance-based system, um, people are turned into enemies, people are turned into rivals in, in a competition for, for something that um, need not be distributed that way. Right. So it's, it's sort of pointing out that there are options to how you provision resources and we take it for granted in, in, in a lot of settings that, that it's a fair because people can compete for them or people might have the same right to the, you know, sort of the means to get there. But, but how you design them actually matters from a moral standpoint. He's That's right. And what's particularly interesting about the paper is he says there's something about it that matters that actually isn't about fairness per se, and it isn't about efficiency, right? We often evaluate, for example, healthcare systems based on whether we think they're they're fair to everyone involved, are they fair to sort of low-income people or people that are struggling to find work? Um, Is the system efficient? Does it use resources in, um, in an efficient manner? Hussein says there's something else we should care about as well. And it's more to do with the relationships that people in a society find themselves in, right? They can either be able to um, be, be, have a sense of community or solidarity with one another because my doing well doesn't depend on, on you on your doing badly. We're not, we're not rivals in that sense. Um, or, you know, social systems can, can pit us against each other. They can make it so my doing better depends on me st- pushing other people into the dirt, as Hussein puts it in, in one point, right? Where um, my, I, me getting access to what I need or what I, what, I, what I care about depends on other people failing to do so. Yeah, and he gives examples in the education setting in the paper where it's a really interesting case of a, I think it's a physics department with a tenure um, situation where two different um, people, person A and person B are, are vying for tenure. And maybe some of our listeners might be in that situation. Um, even though obviously uh, it's an abstract situation, but it's one that is rooted in, in a reality in higher ed. Um, and, and he talks about different ways to design that competition thinking about this idea, right? That's right. And I, the example is, I find particularly funny because Professor Hussein was, was up for tenure um, while this paper was under review. And so it's perhaps a little bit on the nose. Um, so he, he describes this physics department that has two junior professors that haven't yet made tenure or on the track to do so. And the department... Um, has said for has had a policy for a long time, which says, look, either both 
or just one, or neither of these professors will make tenure, we'll just evaluate it solely based on the work that they do. It's pretty hard to make tenure. Each person, you know, going into going into the game has about a 50% chance of succeeding, right? But neither's success depends on the other one's failure, right? So they can both, they can be friends, they can egg each other along, they can celebrate in the other's successes, lamenting the other's failures, because nothing really depends on it. And, and they might both then, end up winning. They might both get tenure. That's right. And be future that's colleagues. Right. They, could, yeah. they could both get tenure. They could be future colleagues. Um, they don't need to sort of feel threatened if one of them, say, gets this great publication, because the, the, they both they both stand a, a, a chance of, um, of getting the, the tenured positions that they're after. But then suppose the department decides, no, no, let's, th- let's think about this whole tenure system a bit differently. We'll say there's just one position open, um, and we will award tenure to, of the, of the two junior professors that we have, the one that, the one that does the best, right, in terms of their research and their publications or whatever the metric is. Now, the thing about the switching is that both still have about the same chance of success, assuming that before... You know, they each had about a 50% chance of getting tenure. But now they're rivals. Now, if one of them starts getting these great publications or getting these research grants that really put them ahead, the other one has reason to be concerned about that, right? Now their own interests have been set back. And Hussein says that, you know, what we have now is a, is a rivalrous relationship, right? These two professors that could before celebrating one another, one another's successes, lament their failures, are now, now have to hope that the other one does badly. And now, have to, now the only way in which they can succeed is by, is by ruining the other one's hopes and dreams. Um, and he says there's something, there's something about that that isn't about fairness, it isn't about the sort of the efficiency or the productivity of the arrangement, it's about the kind of relationship that, that these these. Um, junior professors are put into. It seems like there's a lot of common sense to the reading of it. It reads very um, accessible, especially for a philosophy, as a non-philosopher anyway, I can say it felt very accessible. But, um, and so you think like this was all been said, but it seems like this was a new, some of this is fresh in the field of political philosophy. Yeah, I mean, as you say, well, it, it is. I mean, one thing about, you know, much of academia is so many conversations are, you know, three steps deep into things that were said years ago. And every now and again, you get a paper that just cuts through that and tries to describe something that once you hear it feels like it should have been at the center of the discussion the whole time. And, and this pitting people against each other, I think, really fits that fits that description. Um I mean, there are there are precedents for it. In some ways, what Hussein is, is talking about goes back to to long-standing anxieties about markets and competition. But what he, whereas much of that is focused on, you know, the the idea that sometimes markets lead to inequality or lead to unfairness, um, or arguments about you know whether the market system is the most efficient um, way to way to arrange things. Hussein has, you know, been attempted over a series of publications, but I think really got to it here to say, no, no, there's, there's, there's something um, that this discussion is missing. It's, it's some value of solidarity. There's something that's lost when we have to 
view one another, our colleagues, our classmates, our fellow citizens as, as rivals. And that's not just about whether we have an equal society or equal system, and it's not about whether we have an efficient one. It's about how we stand in relation to one another. And that really hasn't been at the center of a lot of academic discussions of markets, though, as I say, when I, when I teach this, I find that the students immediately get it, right? They, they know what it's like to be pit against one another. I, I ask them to, to look at their classmates and think about the fact that if they're trying to both get, you know, trying to all get into the same kinds of graduate programs or get into law school or something like that, then, you know, if they're being compared against one another, then they're, you know, their classmates doing really well in this class is a, is a setback for them. Um, and there's something about that that is a loss, um, Hussein argues. This, that's something we should regret or try to avoid when we can. Yeah, that there's something, because he, he talks about, he's not anti-competition, which is really interesting. He's not anti-markets. And he goes out of his way to say that, in, it seems. that, But you can design a competitive system without such a sharp pitting against each other, I guess. Yeah, he suggests a couple of ways to do that. And one is, you know, competitions are all well and good when they're kept within the spirit of like a friendly competition, right? There's nothing wrong with being rivals in some cases, right? He He talks about like having a friendly tennis match. That's fine, right? There's nothing so great at stake there. But like when... What's at stake is access to goods like healthcare or housing or admittance into, you know, professional programs where a bunch of candidates might be deserving, but they only take, you know, the ones that that rank the highest in the assessment. Well, there we've we've raised the stakes maybe more than we want to, right? He, He thinks that where rivalry or competition becomes a concern is when we're competing for the things that, that make for, for a good and a secure life, right? There, there the competition is no longer this sort of friendly, spirited thing that's, that's contained and, and isn't eating away at us. It's, it's, it infests every part of our relationships one another, with one another. Yeah, it makes me think of the Hunger Games, but he even mentions gladiatorial combat. Like, it's, it's as if two people enter one only one leaves even though people don't think of getting you know applying to grad school that way there's a certain notion in some of these cases where it it is kind of has some something in common that's right this is this is moments in the article that i always find myself coming back to where he, he talks about taking his daughters to the local park and sort of looking around at the other children and the other parents and thinking, look, these are my kids' rivals, right? If I want my kids to have the best shot at succeeding, then I'm going to have to start doing what these other parents are doing, which is enrolling my, my daughters in extra tuition programs, making sure that they can do what they can to get into the best universities and from there into the best graduate programs. And these, these parents and these kids that, you know, should, we should just be, you know, together, you know, in the, in the, we're at the park, right? We should just be in a, in a sense of community. Actually, we're, we're rivals. We don't think of it that way, but, but we are. Um, and 
I think that that really puts the finger on on, on something that is again can you know can easily be missed, but but once it's it's pointed out, I think it's at something really true about how our societies are organized. And I feel like I I was kind of debating when to bring this in, but you obviously you studied with Hussein and and knew what he um, yourself and I did as well. Um, and and this is an unusual episode for me in that I. Um, I started, I found this paper and actually I did get a chance. I did get a chance to talk to Weheed about this. Um, it was one of the last conversations that we had, um, for, for those who don't know, he, Hussein passed away of, of cancer. Um, gosh, it's been a couple years now, but it was during the pandemic. So it was just in the last year and a half or so. It was in January of 2021, I think. So a little bit over a year and it was very sudden. Um, in fact, most of his colleagues at the university didn't didn't know that he was sick. He didn't have much time after his diagnosis, I don't think. Yeah, and he, um, I, I, I basically, I met Wahid when we were both at, at Princeton as undergrads, and um, he, I, it's, I, 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 it's a, a long story, but he stole away my girlfriend at the time. Um, there's all kinds of, but he and I were 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 also friends. I mean, he came to my bachelor party for my own wedding. He came to my wedding. He was a, a huge force in, in my life and somebody who taught me so much. And I was on playgrounds in DC with, with his daughter and his son and my kids uh, who were the same age, roughly, um, playing on those playgrounds and having some of the conversations that um, was kind of probably led up to his thinking on um, in this paper. And, you know, I, I just wish I, I'm very excited to talk to you. Thank you for helping us bring this paper to our listeners because, um, he, um, like you said, he didn't have much, he didn't have much time once he found out. And so he and I had a preliminary conversation about this paper that I didn't tape, um, because there, you know, we, we had, we had time, we thought to get him on tape talking about it. And, um, you know, it's a it's a huge loss to to not have him here. But this paper um, won some big awards and has gotten a lot of attention, and it's still here for us to to read and and to process. And so, um, but I, I really do think there's something there's something important to um, some of the framework of just like you said the common sense of it, but also like a missing piece and it sounds like your own work is exploring some of this too in how we talk about some of the the way opportunities are distributed in this country and especially around education and how the systems are designed and whether you know it's not that there's something besides just merit and hard work and even and even equity in some ways there's there's how it feels to be in the world that we create with the social levers that are out there. And I think that's what, that's what he was so focused on and that he um, sometimes in a, and those who know him know sometimes he would be impatient about people's missing this. You know, I know for, for me, he would just be like, how could you not see this um, sometimes about the way the world worked? But he wanted to highlight the way things these these things are important. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it might be interesting to say something about his philosophical influences, right? So Hussein was a was very influenced by by Jean Jacques Rousseau, the famous French or rather Genevan uh, philosopher, um, most known as a theorist of, of democracy, of the idea that that the people should together set the rules that they live by. But Hussein really drew out. I suppose the anxieties that led Rousseau to, to think so carefully about democracy in the first place, right? So Rousseau, in his discourse on the origins of inequality, describes the sort of long-term social process that he imagines um, happening. It's almost this fable that he tells where people's tendency, initially quite innocent, to understand themselves and their self-worth by comparison to others, runs out of control, right? This process is set in motion with, with that kind of comparison. Um, this tendency to compare ourselves with others really comes to shape all of a society. And, and you know, wealth and status um, become the things that people seek in order to sort of lord themselves above, the, above others. And, you know, that's, that's a, con, you know, a concern that Rousseau sort of famously articulated. But I think it's fair to say that you know, hasn't always been put at the center of our thinking about the, the complex market economies and societies we have now. And Hussein, with this idea of putting people against each other, I think really puts it back into focus, right? There's something that what, what matters is how we relate to one another, right? Whether we, whether we stand as, as enemies, as rivals, or whether as we stand as, as, as fellow citizens, um, right? Um, and the, the, the book that he was working on uh, before, before he passed away it was called Living With the Invisible Hand. And I think that title says a, this a, says a fair bit about his interests, right? You know, the invisible hand, the idea that markets produce efficient arrangements is sort of just, you know, while there's been much debate about it, it's, it's not often discussed what it is to live in a society sort of shaped by these market forces that we don't really have any control over. We just try to do our best from within from within the marketplace, from within the, the system that we have. And what Hussein was trying to articulate is, no, what, what, what is that like for, for the average person trying to, trying to navigate that, right? What does that do for our communities? Since you've taught this with students, um, I wonder, you know, and, and, and thought about this, like what, what, what are some takeaways for somebody? I mean, that wants to design a better world, a less contentious, a less, you know, pitted world. I mean, part of it, you know, when I talk to my students, we always end up talking about grades um, in the sense that, you know, though the students are are present to learn ideally and to, to take on the information, also they're trying to get a high grade those high grades affect, you know, the various competitions going forward that they might go into, particularly if they're wanting to, to move on to a graduate program. And so, you know, one way that Hussein proposes to avoid pitting people against each other is instead of saying, look, we're going to rank the people um, that in terms of how well they do, instead say, look, what we're trying to do is, is assess some sort of minimum qualification, right? Have you shown 
the, the minimum sort of level of, of critical reasoning and writing that you say that you might need um, to, get into, to get into law school. And then admit everyone who meets that standard, regardless of sort of how many that is in a given year. You could set it high enough so you can predict, but, you know, Hussein suggests that's a, that's a significant frame shift, right, compared to we're going to accept who, you know, this number of students that, that do the best, right? We're going to pit these students against one another and, and see who comes out on top, right? There, well, you know, one student's doing really well is one less spot for, for their classmates, right? Whereas if, if we start thinking about, no, no, anyone who meets the minimum standard should, should have a place in a quality law school somewhere, for example, well, then the students can feel, you know, that they have reason to support one another. There's no, there's no loss in one of their classmates doing well because that's, that's not taking away a potential spot from them. And we, it is just, it's just, it's funny how, you know, I guess somebody that disagreed with the paper could argue that, you know, that it's, that we don't think about it as crushing someone into the dirt as we, as we go about our lives in the system that we do have, you know, just to play devil's advocate. So I guess, but, but the, it seems to argue that this is an engulfing structure. You can't just say, I'm not thinking about it. Or if you are, you're maybe being disingenuous somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think that what, one thing to take away from this is that, you know, Hussein describes this as something about the structure of the, the social institutions that we have, right? The way in which they allocate rewards um, to, to persons. And, you know, he defines it in a fairly kind of abstract technical way. What is it for there to be rivalry? It's for the only way for one person to succeed in their plans is to go about it in a way that will prevent someone else from succeeding in their plans. He doesn't say that for there to be rivalry, we need to be thinking of one another as, as enemies. We don't even have to, we don't have to make an intention to sort of push the other person into the dirt, so to speak. The, the structure is set up where we're going to be doing that regardless of whether we're thinking about it or not. Um, and we might think, well, you know, perhaps, you know, it would be, problematic for, you know, the, the status quo, so to speak, if more attention was given to this, right? We, we, a lot of um, weight is put on the idea of, of living in a, in a meritocracy, right? Where, you know, yeah, sure, there's competitions, but that works out for the best because the, the most qualified, the most meritous persons get the best positions, get the best pay, and so on and so forth. Um, but what, you know, this idea of pitting people against each other does is note, okay, but, you know, what's, what's that like to be trying to climb to the top of the rankings in this system? What, what happens to those that are left behind and also what happens to those that succeed, right? What does that, what does that cost along the way? It also just feels like such a, a, you know, he started writing these ideas before the kind of hyper- polarization and you know i think it's safe to say before even the trump era he was writing some of the ideas the from these papers and yet it seemed like that you know the 
today we are in a moment where it does feel like very um there's so many battles it feels like it's things feel so scrappy and 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 contentious in, in ways that that it didn't in public discourse even 10 years ago and so it does feel um it it feels almost like more relevant now than even when he came up with it perhaps I think that's right. And I think that the sort of central idea of pitting people against each other um, can be extended beyond the, the context that, that Hussein discusses, which are largely about competitions for resources, right, in education and healthcare and, and the labor market in particular. But, you, you know, a general thing to take from the, the discussion is that when we are pit against each other, we have a lot of reason to focus on where we're at, right, and what we need to, to be more likely to succeed, kind of above or else, right? We don't have that much attention to worry about the bigger picture, to think about, you know, the, the, the broader state of democracy or, or the climate, um, right? We're, this, we're, we're hustling, right? We're just trying to make ends meet month to month, worried about um, getting the, the next promotion or the next job because, if we if we don't focus on that, we know that someone else will. And I think that, you know, there's something that I, I found that that speaks to something, you know, really true about um, at least my students' experience, right? They really they really feel that. Um, and that, that my students have found have proposed all sorts of ways to to expand on this, as to say, to think about, you know, the way in which um, political discourse is so polarizing, right? It's a way that it's framed in so many ways as an, as an us first them, right? Once, once you do that, well, that, that cuts off other forms of like solidarity or community that you, you might hope to have instead. And that, and that democracy has long championed, right? Or the, or the, the ideal of democracy has anyway. That's right. To, to go back to Rousseau, right? That the thought is a democracy is not where each person thinks about what are my interests and votes for those, but instead where each person tries to think for themselves what's the best for everyone and then is part of this kind of collective discussion about thinking how we can build a society that serves everyone's interests. Those are two very different models, right, of thinking about democracy. One is where each person just votes for their own interests and the larger group of interest wins. And the other one is where we're part of this kind of collective project of looking out for everyone. It's much harder to, to feel able to participate in that collective democratic project if, you know, you, there's so much of what you care about um, could be lost, right? If you, if you don't keep your job, if you don't... Um, get that education that you think you need, right? It's, you might say that it sets this kind of competitive mindset in ourselves, um, you know, in the way we engage in, in labor markets and in education. Um, that makes it very hard to then switch focus when we, when we enter the, the democratic or the public sphere and think in more communal terms. Right? Yeah. And um, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things you mentioned the the example about tenure was very close to home for Wahid for Hussein because he 
was actually up for tenure as he was putting these this paper together. He actually found out about that he got it. He won tenure, and then very soon after found out about his cancer. So it just was, um, oh, it just feels so unfair as far as, um, as far as the, uh, the, the, the justice in that, but that, that. I think it was the, the timeline was slightly different in that he found out while he was in the tenure review, but didn't want to say anything because he didn't want to, to prejudice the, the evaluation. Um, and I think he made tenure with, with, flying colors really um as you said this this paper won an award within the philosophy community for the best paper published um in the year that it came out um which i think was well deserved i mean this paper you know went through a long review process it might be worth saying right so though i think on its reception um it you know has been has been recognized as saying something really important uh i think Hussein struggled a little bit with the reviewers who were, you know, because it, it wasn't, you know, because this is the kind of paper that tries to say something new rather than tries to continue a, a long discussion. Um, I think that he had to do some convincing to, to, to show, no, 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 this, this, this needs to be paid attention to. No, I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, do you have any, um, just any comments on on his the legacy of his ideas with with your work or or any yeah um i mean in terms of my work i'm also very interested in competition my focus in sort of thinking about business ethics and professional ethics more broadly is the idea that when you're in a competition you're excused in doing some things that otherwise would look pretty shady right i gave the example earlier of businesses, you know, letting off employees or moving their, their factories or their, their, their businesses to places where labor is cheaper and, you know, justifying that on the grounds that, look, this is a market competition. We got to do what's best for the bottom line, do what's best for, for shareholder value. What I think is where, where, you know, Hussein was just invaluable to me in the research is thinking, about what competition is, about how it works, about what its what its advantages are, but also what its costs are, um, including for the, the the sort of moral outlook, the, the ethical lives of the, the people wrapped up in it. So yeah, what what was it like to work with Wahid as as your professor? You know, as an advisor, I, I think it's fair to say that he was always a little bit intimidating to meet because he would always you would. Count on, you could count on him to ask the, the penetrating questions, right? To, to back up and say, look, Hamish, like, what are you talking about, right? What are the assumptions that you're bringing to this? And, like, what, are those the right assumptions to bring? You know, which is, which is the right advice to get as a, as a graduate student, right? Because you, you, you think about a project and you read the literature on it and you try to sort of work out how you can make a move within that literature. But Hussein was such a thinker of trying to think beyond the, the, the frameworks or the assumptions in which the literature had got stuck, right? And you could count on him in meeting with him for him to really, to really push you, right? To, to say, why are you accepting um, that way of thinking about it? Just because, the, you know, these Harvard professors that you're, you're basing your, your work on are, are saying that doesn't mean you have to say it as well. Um, so it was really valuable that way. He was also loved as an 
undergraduate instructor. He taught this big introduction to ethics class, and he really, I, I haven't seen a professor succeed so much at getting a whole lecture room of students just excited. Um, and he would make sure to get their engagement. Famously, he would make students stand up in order to, to ask a question or to answer a question or make a comment. He would get them to stand up and, and, and address the whole room. And, you know, usually the students would be a little apprehensive about this at the start, but then they would build their confidence as the, as the class went along. Um, I think it meant a lot to them. I, I also think it's, you know, it's worth saying that, you know, Scarborough is a, you know, relatively underprivileged suburb of Toronto. A lot of the students are first or second generation immigrants to Canada. They're also first generation university students some of the time. Um, and it meant a lot to them to have, you know, a professor called Wahid Hussain at the front of the lecture hall. Um, you know, someone to, I guess, to, to look up to or see themselves in. And he, you know, called call them in to be part of the, the conversation. Um, you know, we, there was a memorial event um, to commemorate his, his, his death and the student, you know, students came out and really talked about how he had, like, shaped, shaped their life, you know, that kept in touch, that gone on to pursue these different careers, but, like, he was the professor that, that really um, made them feel sort of empowered to, to think their own way and defend their own view and, and be confident in that. Well, thank you so much for helping to, to work through this paper with us and for, for sharing your, your story here. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we were able to talk about this. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we try to step back and look at education innovation and the forces shaping the sector. I encourage everyone out there to read this paper by Wahid Hussein. He was an original and provocative thinker, as well as a generous friend. And I feel lucky to have gotten to know him. I miss him. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. I'm on Twitter at JR Young. We're going to be back next week with more like this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.